0: love this podcast support this show through the Acast supporter feature it's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment just hit the link in the show description to support now
1: welcome to starship sofa part of the district of wonders network featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
0: This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Sure 445... I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome to week two of our Translations special month. Got a great story coming up. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is that great story. It is Sense of Wonder 2.0 by Lauren Kwisai. Translated by Edward Garvin. Then we have, it's JJ Campanella, end of the month there, science news. How cool is that? That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, the second of this month's special of translations, which Jeremy's been putting together... This story was originally written in French and has been translated into English. Like I say, it's called Sense of Wonder by Lorraine Quisset. I hope that's, <laughs> you know what I mean, not and to bet it's not. It's been translated by Edward Garvin. It was originally published in New Accelerator, issue number two. Based in Bordeaux, France, Lorraine Cusay is the author of six novels for young adult readers. Most recently, Alison, a coming-of-age tale about superpowers and 90s music. He has also written for comics and translated authors from Grant Morrison to Alastair Reynolds. He wrote his dissertation on Philip K. Dick and devoted a later essay to James Bond. This story... Like I say, previously published in New Accelerator it is featured in his critically acclaimed 2012 collection. Like a demented robot, robot pre-programmed at half time. And he also hosts a podcast as well. And now I can't even pronounce that, but there's links on. You know what I mean? Please, there's links on. <laughs> to come, come over and visit his site as well. He also has a newsletter as well. Just fantastic. Lauren, thank you so much for this. And this story has been translated by Edward Garvin. Who has received fellowships and residencies from PEN America, the NEA, the Fulbright Program, the LAN Foundation, and the French Embassy? His work has won him the John Dyer Translation Prize and the Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Award, and has been nominated for the French American Foundation and the Oxford. Winefield Translation Prize. Well done, sir. Well done. Other publications have appeared in Fantasy and Science Fiction, Asimov, Pseudopod, Podcastle, The New York Times, Harper's, and World Literature Today. This translator of more than 200 graphic novels. Where to go. He is a contributing editor for Comics Art World Without Borders. Edward, what a star. Thank you so much. And... Don't forget, this story is narrated by Rock Manor, who has been featured as a voice performer on podcasts such as Mostly Podcast, Sudapod, Tales to Terrify... He is the producer of Manor House, hosted by The Phantom Collector, the horror audio anthology series featured on both iTunes and YouTube. Producers of the Black Tapes podcast called Manor House. Top-notch and best-selling author Brian Keene says, Manor House is like Tales from the Crypt. It is really fucking cool. <laughs> Which Rock thinks is really fucking cool. <laughs> you can visit him at manahouseshow.com way to go there rock thank you so much for this again pop over there's loads of links on there jeremy's got all the links kind of sorted out if you anything you know so let's dive in the starship sova is very proud to present
1: sense of wonder 2.0 by laurent kesey translated by edward govin i gave my skateboard one last kick and watched it roll across the porch It came to a halt by the door, which stood ajar. I went inside the little house, leaving behind the stifling heat and a sleepy subdivision. Just another Wednesday afternoon. Anyone home? Inside, it was cool. A.C., the air of modernity. As usual, the den looked like a tornado had just hit. Coke cans, plastic water bottles, pizza boxes, various food wrappers. I picked my way through toward Mark's room. A noise came from my left. A figure took shape, coming toward me. A nice figure. Oh, Alex, it's you. I thought I heard the door. It was Mark's mom, Michelle. Seeing her in her low-cut jeans and tight white T-shirt, I thought, I'd motorboat those tits. I'd pet that pussy. Michelle had been in Evian long enough to know how to take care of her body, so she didn't show her age. She must have gotten snatched up more than twenty years ago, when the offers just were starting. I had been fantasizing about her ever since the first time I came over. How was it she still lived alone? It beat the hell out of me. Though, virtue orgies she joined through her implant every night, I could picture those quite clearly. "'Oh, hey, Michelle.' Just saying her name gave me a heart on What I wouldn't give to. Go ahead, Mark's in his room. Okay, thanks. I kept on toward the back of the house and my friend's lair. Wow! Wait, am I seeing things? What? What's the matter? Your shoes. How long have you... Right. So she didn't know. Mark hadn't told her. I turned around, proud, and looked down at the red logo on my sneakers. There I was, flying brand colors. It meant I'd sign a binding contract with the manufacturer. With certain perks came certain responsibilities. The three stripes guaranteed me a salary, but I had to remain worthy of it. Oh, just a few days. I'm an Adidas now. Congrats. Thanks. I got a good offer and I figured I was old enough to sign up. Good for you. Say a little something to Mark for me, will you? He's not as grown up as you. I said nothing, just kept going. She didn't know. Her son had been a Toshiba for a year now, and she didn't suspect a thing. It'd kill her if she knew, a fitness addict, an Evian, with a body right out of a wet dream, that the flesh of her flesh... The blood of her blood had been bought up by Toshiba. So much for her plans to make him a Dior someday, or at least a Reebok. Still, she must have had some clue that the nerd who never came out of his room, the kid who wanted his implant at age five, didn't care about his body, much less his looks. I knocked and walked straight into Mark's room. My friend was slumped in his padded chair, hands over his keyboard, eyes glazed over. Probably jacked into the infosphere through his implant. The only light in the little room was from the screen. Quite a change from the blazing day outside, which gave him a ghostly look. Yo yo yo, ahoochie, over here, bro. I was only allowed to call him that when we were alone. It went back so long I couldn't remember why I called him that. Not important. The name sounded like he looked lethargic. God damn it, Alex. I fucking told you not to yell like that when I'm in deep. I never know where it's coming from, and I lose my bearings. It's totally distracting. Probably even dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, but it's always good for a laugh. Uh, You mind? I pointed to the window. Mark shrugged, straightening up. He ran a hand through his hair and scratched the left side of his head a bit. I opened the window, threw the shutters wide, then shut the window again. The glass tinted fast— set to intense outside brightness. The light became less harsh almost immediately. No problems on the way over? (laughs) Ran into some Nikes, but I managed to shake them. They're everywhere these days. Fucking Americans. Oh, didn't you hear? One of them got beat up bad last night. Maybe that's why they're out in force. No, missed it. No surprise, though go around pissing everyone off like that and it'll happen. Sooner or later, one of those arrogant little pricks was going to run afoul of an Everlast. Tisk tisk. I shook my head, picturing what the Nikes would have done to me if they'd caught me. Well, let's go then, Mark said. Where are we going? Vincent's. He's got something for us. Drugs? What kind? Mark was silent for a moment, trying to build up suspense. Fail? The good kind, he said, getting up from his chair. I followed him and tried to catch a glimpse of Michelle in the living room. No dice. Outside, in the burning sun, we went down the cement sidewalk, alongside the cloned houses. Red brick, browned lawns, sometimes a tree or a car out front. No sign of life. Residential desert. I picked up my skateboard. God damn it, I knew it. Go get your fix without me. Or start paying me to be your bodyguard. Hey, chill out. There's enough to go around. Aw, come on. You know I play in the clean leagues. No recreational highs. Relax, man, Mark reassured me. This stuff won't inhibit your physical abilities. You'll pass your drug test, no problem. And besides, you'd have a much better time at meets in the all-enhancement leagues. Whatever, man. ''Have you seen my brother? Don't get me started on his balls. He keeps taking retroplio-mazanine. They're going to fall right off.'' Mark burst out laughing. I went on. ''So what are we talking about here?'' ''The stuff of dreams, man. The stuff of fantasy. Someone across the pond managed to synthesize the sense of wonder.'' ''The hell's that?'' Mark quickened his step, waving his arms, agitated. Christ, what the fuck am I doing with a dumb jock like you? Your face, you fucking Sheba. Always showing off your stupid facts when you don't even know who won the last Globo Cup. No, and I don't give a shit. Not exactly the stuff of dreams. My dreams, it is. Sure, fine. But it has nothing to do with the sense of wonder. So, you feel like explaining? Remember that movie Singularity Explorers? You mean the one with what's-her-name? So Hot. Yeah, that one. Well, remember how you felt when you found out at the end that these guys were watching them through the walls and still other guys were watching the Watchers? Oh, yeah, that was awesome. Uh, Kind of a dizzying feeling. I dropped my skateboard, stepped on it, and pushed off with my other foot to get a few yards ahead. The blue skateboard went well with the red logos on my Adidas. I said, ''Like in that old flick, Sky Captain, when you realize the base they've been landing at is airborne too.'' ''Bingo. You got it, man.'' Not exactly the same order of idea or setup, but the effect is similar. Something inexplicable that transports you, leaves your jaw hanging.'' It's getting harder and harder to find as a feeling, even if you spend all day in the archives of the sphere like I do. You wind up feeling like you've seen it all before. This stuff has to be handcrafted. It's almost a vanished art. But if this drug Vincent dug up can stimulate your neurons the same way, then awesome, right? Hmm, not bad. But not my style. A farmer like that's for guys like you. What I need is something that'll make me feel like I just scored a goal in the Global Cup Finals. It's a matter of scale. According to what Vincent told me, the effect is multiplied. The difference between you scoring for the Suburban Soccer League and Mikhailov scoring a decisive goal in the Finals for the Euro Cup. The sensations are comparable, maybe, but not the same. It's a hundred times stronger. All right, we'll see. I might try it out. We walked another mile and a half. Around us, nothing moved. Same facades, same sidewalks, same smells kerosene and cut grass. Only the numbers on the houses changed. Mark went down an alley leading to a home just like his, number 28874569. "'Another black heli passed by overhead. "'Instinctively, I flipped off the Secura cam "'atop a teleelectric pole. "'Then I kicked my board up and caught it "'before falling in behind Mark as he rang the doorbell. "'A guy with a mustache opened the door. "'Vincent's dad, Hakim. "'Like most folks on his street, "'he had no job and stayed plugged into the sphere all day. "'We asked vaguely after the characters "'on his favorite series, Wild Excavations, "'before heading down into the basement.' vincent's burrow he was playing blast hero six with other sony's a little king in glasses surrounded by his court the walls were plastered with naked past actresses and virtual sluts and the air was a mixture of cold sweat and cheese chips there were paperbacks and comics everywhere screens of all sizes old kitty pods on shelves and in the middle of it all a brown sofa leathery and stained on which three Sonys were sitting. In a corner of the room, Phil, with his old skinny jeans and striped short sleeve button-down, gave us new arrivals a once-over with a gimlet eye. Look at all these ass hats, Mark yelled as he came in. Your face, you Sheba dickweed, said one of the Sonys, slumped on the sofa. I went over to Phil and fist-bumped him in greeting. He barely looked at me. I wondered what he was doing there. He'd never really been a part of the world of screenheads, usually loitering in the streets instead, drifting from one tribe to another, always looking to scrape together a few credits. We'd spent a few years together at Shop Mall, back when the Sphere was still giving mandatory courses. I never thought he understood a word of what the A.I.s taught us. Sometimes I'd still run into his parents in the R.D. What a strange couple. A black and decker and an apparently brandless fat woman. There were jokes about how she belonged to Nutella. Actually, neither she nor her son had contracts. Still virgins. To a world where everyone's salary was roughly the same, Phil's family was part of what used to be called the rank and file. Not that they were really so much poorer, but something about the way they dressed and carried themselves kept them apart from our community and the rest of the world. I liked Phil. He didn't seem to give a shit about not having a brand. That made him special, in my eyes. He didn't talk much, but when he did, his stories were worth listening to. They were never about the latest show on the sphere or implant porn. No. Phil spun tales of violence in the burbs that fascinated me. I'm sure most of the escapades he claimed to be mixed up in were made up, but I went along with them anyway. Just to hear him ad-lib the part where he kicks some Lacoste teeth in or got his wrist broken by a squad of rabid shop mall guards. Sometimes, I'd find him sitting in a little park somewhere, one of those parks that pop up every mile or so in the subdivision, mandated by Law, high off his gourd on some pharma one of the many shady types he knew had cooked up, guys who didn't even live in the R.D., incredible as that sounded. Once, he'd shown up at Melly's birthday and started heroin while everyone else was downing hallucinogens, Against all expectations, he hadn't gotten into a fight. He'd even seemed kind of happy. Not something you saw every day. If you were looking for a drug slightly out of the ordinary, Phil was your man. I liked him. He barely looked my way. All of a sudden, he spoke. ''Well, the gang's all here. Can we go now?'' Vince nodded and turned to his fellow Sonys. ''Stay here, guys. I won't be gone long.'' Got some business to take care of with Mark. Slay that robo-dragon for me and lead the squadron to the gates of Syred. I'll be back in time for the siege. But what if we meet Lucinda? Asked one of the kids on the couch. What should we tell her? Get gang-raped while we wait for you to show? The kid beside him laughed. King Vince said nothing. Just went upstairs. So did we. Hey, said Mark. "'I thought you had the stuff already, Vince. "'Where are we going?' "'Shop mall. "'To meet up with Phil's man.' "'So you don't have the pharma in hand?' "'Vince shrugged. "'Not yet, man. "'Not yet.' "'Nothing ever went down as planned. "'There was always a catch. "'Here I was, nice guy Alex, "'stuck shepherding Mark around, "'me, who half the time never touched drugs. "'Another two miles in the melting asphalt fumes.' We took a lot of right-angle turns at the ends of endless streets, keeping the dome of our destination in sight. Phil and Mark were fast walkers. Vince had a hard time keeping up. His tea from Jumparco, a subsidiary of his overbrand, soon darkened with sweat. I drifted on my skateboard into the road, avoiding the rare silent car that passed us. They were also heading for Shop Mall, the only place in the residential district that showed any signs of life. Sunny Shore, for that was its name, looked like half an orange plunked down in the middle of the subdivision. The surrounding parking lot, a vast expanse striped with white lines and littered with vehicles, almost as rounded as the main building, was lined with floral paths that led to one of the complex's eight doors. Shopmall always recalled those sketches of fortresses I'd seen in my father's books. I couldn't have said why, but that monster of aluminum and glass... "'put me in mind of an impregnable stronghold, "'the last refuge of civilization. "'Sometimes I pictured it instead "'as a gigantic beached sea monster, "'all of us surrounding it like plankton. "'If we were ever attacked by aliens or zombies one day, "'I was sure the people of the RD would gather in shop mall. "'Like peasants in a medieval citadel. "'It was our womb, our mother ship.' a place where the few among us with jobs could display their superiority to the masses, mere shoppers, consumers devoted to their brands. I'd never seen another mall except in the sphere, but I knew every mall on the planet looked the same. We swarmed around them like parasites feeding on a fallen beast. Sometimes i feel like the district was stifling me. It's heat, silence, and monotony. So I dove into the cool air of Sunnyshore, the only place where people my age looked alive. I'd just sit for hours watching girls go by, their skin tanned with Shiseido bronze, their paper bags with ribbon handles, their skirts fluttering to the beat of Alex Mitchell, Michael Gaydrat, or some other purveyor of Muzak. I zoned out on the fake white marble, or a store logo. And there, in the belly of the beast, I finally feel like I was at home. One with humanity as I knew it. God damn, but I loved Shopmall. Our meet was set for the eighth floor of the west side, in front of the Ubusk Boutique, with a Michelin, one of those clods who still tinkered with gasoline cars. He was about thirty and seemed to know Phil well, a whispered conference, and then we fell in step behind the retro mod mechanic, who led us down an escalator then a glass elevator and finally out the exit through a long parade of stores for shoes grub decor implants while you wait sex toys bd games perfume glasses jewelry phones for people who couldn't afford implants cigars antiques old movies prefab houses cars dna testing spheres prostheses underwear pants shirts slut skirts Moose knucklers, sporting goods, flowers, life insurance, pets, nails, wigs, digi-novels, watches. Everything that could be bought was gathered under the roof of this temple, and the consumers themselves were also for sale. The centerpiece of Shop Mall was the logo altar, the seat of human transactions, the biggest store in the mall, an island in the middle of this pile of plastic and metal, It was where, after reviewing a list of the franchisee's rights and duties, you signed the contract that bound you to a brand for life. Bought and sold, as the codgers like to say. A walking advertisement, that's what you are, my great-grandfather would fume. He was 118 years old and had never had a contract. I couldn't help but sneak a peek at the logo altar as we passed by. Mark and Vince did the same. Phil and his pal didn't even seem to notice it. The minute we set foot outside the automatic doors, the heat was everywhere. A caress and a slap all at once. We slowed down. The Michelin led us around Shopmall's outside wall. There he is, he said all of a sudden. Who, him? Mark let out. A security guard was approaching us. His dog, leashed and muzzled, sniffed Mark's balls. "'Brought reinforcements, eh, Phil?' asked the mall employee. "'Yeah, but don't worry, Fred. "'They won't throw themselves at your crotch,' said the no-brander. "'So the Michelin's name was Fred. "'He made no reply, just stretched his hand out toward Phil. "'Mark and Vince pulled bills from their pockets "'and put them in Fred's hand. "'Great. Nice job with the down-low, guys. Five losers and a guard in front of shop mall's great white flank.' We might as well have scheduled an appointment with security or planted ourselves right in front of a camera. The Michelin gave the guard the money and the guard gave him back a little egg-shaped plastic box. Thanks, said Fred. See you next time. We turned around. Where's that farmer from? I asked Phil. No idea. Me neither, said Fred, before forking off toward entrance number three. He waved at us and vanished in the shop mall. Without a word, we started back toward the RD, down to four again. Vince fell in beside me. I heard some labs harvest stuff from dead people's brains and cut it with DMT. DMT, eh? Mark sounded like he had a gel cap under his tongue. Bullshit, said Phil. There's nothing in the human brain that can't be synthesized. I surprised myself by nodding. There were as many myths going around about new drugs as Chloe Centua, interstellar slut, had friends on face fear. The sun was beating down ever harder than before. Sometimes I wondered why we were even on foot. Fine, so most guys our age walked, just to show off their brands, show people in the RD who their friends were, and above all, to avoid taking the bus. That abomination roaming our streets. Our streets. "'transporting those who couldn't drive. "'Anyone who boarded a bus "'was forever marked by all the widows "'with their sagging flesh "'who went from one air-conditioned area to another, "'looking like mummies. "'But shit, when it was as hot out as today, "'our tribal snobberies began to look kind of dumb. "'We turned left at the corner of Sweetwater Way. "'We had a little under a mile left to Vince's place. "'Phil was listing substances the brain put out that were synthesized as drugs you could easily find on the market. I wasn't really listening. But when he said, ''Dudes, time to turn around.'' I looked up from the sidewalk. A gang of guys was running toward us, ten or so. I made out masks on their foreheads and three baseball bats. No point figuring our chances. Pushing off the asphalt, I shot off in the other direction. Meanwhile, Mark was shouting something like, ''Shit, shit, 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 not today!'' I wanted to tell him to shut up and run, but made do with just taking my own advice. In no time at all, Phil and I were leading the pack, Vince lagging behind. I yelled back at him. He'd never make it. He had to turn and cut between the houses, or he'd get caught. Was it because, deep down, I was hoping the others would chase after the easiest prey?'' The sound of our plastic soles slapping the cement was nothing. Nothing next to the urgency, fear, and adrenaline. There's nothing that can't be synthesized. Making us run faster than we'd ever run before. And think faster than John Gare when he proved the non-existence of dark matter. I'd already shaken Nikes earlier when I was heading over to Mark's. But back then, there'd only been three of them. And no baseball bats. Our flight lasted a minute probably a lot less, but it felt like an eternity. I was used to going all out for short bursts on my board, but never under such conditions. My chest had never hurt so bad, and I was the one who usually trained. I wondered how the others were feeling. I turned to look back without slowing down. Phil was two or three meters behind me, with Mark on his heels. The others had stopped chasing us. They'd caught Vince. I stopped. So did my friends. Two hundred yards back, the Sony, surrounded by guys in multicolored tracksuits, was screaming in fear. Oh, shit, said Mark, breathless. Fucking Nikes. Punitive expedition. Phil chimed in. What? They're looking for revenge after what happened yesterday, right? Said the Toshiba. We heard a sharp crack. A bat slammed into Vince's skull. He fell to the ground, and all I could see now were the legs of the Nikes around him. But that wasn't our fault, I said. Or Vince's either. He hadn't been out of the house in three days. They're foaming at the mouth, said Phil. They don't give a shit who they beat up, as long as it makes them feel better. I dropped my gaze and asked, Well, what do we do? Another sound, more muffled probably a knee to the stomach or the balls. We split up, Mark said. Each head for home. No point hanging around till they're done and remember us. No. Phil had never sounded so determined. I'm going back, he said. Scram if you want. I have to try something or they'll cave his head in. He left, heading for the group. I stayed there, wondering what to do go get torn into little tiny pieces for some slow-ass schmuck I barely knew, or follow my friend and hide. I turned to Mark at last. If we go back without that heroic asshat, what are we going to do? He's the one with the drugs. My friend shrugged. I turned back. A few strides later, I joined up with Phil and could hear the Toshiba swearing. In another twenty feet, Mark was right beside me, Sweating hard, he smelled worse than the locker room in August, after practice. One of the Nikes spotted us and called out to the others. They stepped aside, revealing a gory and unmoving mass. Fence, A big blonde guy with long hair and a face like Jonah Farr gave him one last kick before turning around. It was like we were at a sporting event. All these assholes were wearing masks with athletes' faces which made them look like robbers instead. Hello, Steve Pickering, Chuck Tyler, and Francis Champs. And their molded rubber smiles seemed to mock their latest victim, lying at their feet. That was what we'd look like in a few minutes. I hoped the security Cams had already sent out a distress call, or a few good citizens with front row seats behind a living room window had notified the guards. But even if they had, no one could get here in time. There were three of us and ten of them. My near future was looking a lot like Vince's. Face battered to a pulp, probably in a coma. "'Ew! Reinforcements!' said one Nike. "'Fresh meat!' "'Well, goddamn, fellas!' said the big blonde dude. "'You really didn't think we're gonna let you gather up your fuckwad of a friend here, did ya?' "'Besides, we're not done with him yet. I don't think his face is quite messed up enough.' his mom could probably still recognize him if she tried. Now, Arthur, our friend who got busted up yesterday, well, his mom will never hear a word from him again. Fine, but Vince had nothing to do with that, said Phil. All I could see of the Sony lying on the ground was the back of his neck. But what with the pool of blood around his head? I could picture quite clearly what his face looked like. Sure, maybe not him, "'said the blonde. "'But how about you?' "'I've never seen your buddy Arthur in my life,' Phil maintained. "'We've got no beef with you. "'I'm not the kind of guy who'd attack a guy like you.' "'Oh, yeah?' the blonde yelled, clearly heading the pack. "'How about this asshole, then? "'He got a beef with us?' "'He was clearly talking about me. "'What could I say to something like that? "'That I loved Nike but had gone with Adidas "'because Nike hadn't wanted me? "'No.' I fucking hated those assholes and their American products. If there were ten of us and three of them, I'd have loved pulverizing those shitty little athletes all hopped up on Korean steroids. But as it was, they were the ones holding the bats. Better off shutting up and playing for time. I had nothing to do with the attack on your friend. Hell, you know that. You think we fucking give a damn... He was a short Nike with a shaved head. His nose broke before he could finish his sentence. Phil had just given him a headbutt worthy of the final monster in Out of the Dark Four. Taking full advantage of their surprise, he pivoted toward the big blonde dude and kicked him in the nuts. The man in the Jonah Far mask folded in two and fell to his knees. Phil didn't seem to be really into the idea of playing for time. I finished off Mr. Ball Busted with a kick to the face. He was out cold in the middle of the road. Only nine left. Shit. Phil ducked a bat. He followed up with a fist to the belly of his attacker, who dropped his weapon. I bent to pick it up and managed to, just before catching a boot to the ribs. I hit the ground rolling and came right back up. Two shitheels were coming at me. The threat of the bat stopped them cold. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Phil explode on Nike's chin with his knee. Behind us, Mark was still hanging back. God damn it, Ahuichi! What the fuck you doing? Waiting for them to stomp us to pieces? It was the first time I called my friend his nickname in front of other people. Just then, I had other things on my mind besides how sensitive he was. I dodged a kick and swung my bat feebly through the air. With their expressionless rubber masks, our enemies looked like malfunctioning machines deserted by their primary programming. Suddenly. I realized I was a character from one of Phil's stories. If we got out of this, it would become one of the stories he told, exaggerating our feats and the number of attackers, like the dozens of other stories, made up or not, that I'd heard him tell before. But at that moment, off to my right, he'd just taken a fist to the face. He came back with an uppercut that missed its mark by a bit. The Nikes had figured out he was the biggest threat. Three of them went after him. Another one came at me, bat-raised. I parried, and the two wooden weapons banged together. Then an Ash Bryant, all smiles, laid into me. He grabbed my shoulders and took me down. On the ground, I saw a heel miss my nose by inches. It was a miracle. I tried to get up, but this time the Nike hit home. I felt like my back had just shattered. I took several kicks, one to the stomach, another just below— and third to my leg. I lost track before the last one, probably my face. I fell back on the asphalt, gagging, breathless, in terrible pain. I didn't want to fight anymore. Not one bit. I knew if I stayed there, unmoving, they'd take me to pieces. It wouldn't stop till I looked like Vince. But I had nothing left. It was over. The blows were about to rain down. A few shouts reached my ears. Phil and Mark were about to get it, too. I shielded my head with my arms, the bare minimum. But nothing happened. Then I heard the helicopter getting closer. I couldn't believe it. The goddamn cavalry! I opened my eyes. The Nikes had disappeared. "'Fear is a good motivator. "'They tore off faster than Phineas Gross's dad "'when his girlfriend told him she was pregnant. "'Mark stuck out a hand to help me up. "'His lip was split and swollen. "'The heli's loudspeaker kept spitting out articles of the law "'our aggressors had violated, "'promising them the direst tortures. "'As usual, they scattered to the far corners of the R.D., "'and the heli would only chase down one, "'who'd take the rap for the rest.' On my feet again, I spit out something that hadn't previously been in my mouth. A tooth. An incisor. Like my insurance covered that. Phil got up painfully. His nose was broken and his left eye shut. He tried to speak, but an ambulance siren drowned out his words. Whatever good citizen had notified security had done his job well. I walked over to Vince. His face, swollen and bloody made him look like the horror movie version of my neighbor Michael's sister. Disgusting. Two rescue workers and a man in scrubs with a stethoscope around his neck emerged from the ambulance and examined the Sony. The doctor checked his pupils, then cradled Vince's head in his hands for a moment before ordering the others to carry him into the vehicle. Is he covered? The doctor asked me. No idea. He stared off into the distance thinking for a few seconds, then said, We're taking him to a Class 4 hospy. Tell his parents to contact us if they have better insurance. A Class 4 ICU leaves a lot to be desired. Okay. Anyone else who wants medical care can come along. I glanced at Phil, who shook his head. The rescue workers loaded Vince into the ambulance, and the vehicle hurtled off. An interlude of light and noise crossing the quiet R.D., Shit, Mark tossed out there. Yeah, Phil replied. I switched on my implant and passed the news on to Vince's dad, Hakim. The communique lasted only a few seconds. I had no explanation for him. These kinds of dust-ups happened every week in the district. Competition was getting fiercer, and the brands were even starting to make the incidents a talking point. We'd just been unlucky, was all. Soon, signing a contract would be like joining a gang. We drifted off. My left leg hurt every time I put weight on it. We reached a park and I asked for a time out. I sat down on a bench by a little regulation green space. Phil and Mark sat down to either side of me. "'Where's it hurt?' asked the Toshiba. "'My thigh. It's weird.' I can't feel anything where I'm missing a tooth. Just wait, said Phil. It'll come. He pulled the little egg-shaped box from his pocket and took out three joe caps, which he palmed. I'd almost forgotten we'd gone to shop mall for a drug deal. If I were smarter, I'd be pissed at Mark for dragging me into his bullshit. You think this is a good time? Phil turned and stared right at me. Trust me, there won't be a better one. All I wanted was to believe him. The pharma didn't taste like anything at all. The manufacturer hadn't even bothered to give it a flavor. So sure of themselves. What was the sense of wonder really worth? I waited for several minutes. I fixated on a blade of grass. No one spoke. Something was going to happen. A miniature man... Teeny and lost in the lawn, was the first to show up. Early wonder. Then, right away, a giant woman, fifty feet tall from what I gathered, took his place. And the rest followed full tilt. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Joe Chip on a fifty-cent piece... Friendly aliens who looked like the devil. To serve man. It's... It's a cookbook. That's no moon. It's a space station. Eighty-eight miles per hour. Tem has already been forgotten. Humans are fuel for machines. Flying car. Origami unicorn. I... AM AN ANDROID. THE DAY OF THE GREAT SHOUT. I DREAM THAT I HAVE A NAME. JETPACK. IT'S A BIRD. IT'S A PLANE. IT'S... THE GRASSHOPPER LIES HEAVY. MY MIND IS GOING. I CAN FEEL IT. JOHN CONNOR IS THE LEADER OF THE RESISTANCE. THE STATUE OF LIBERTY ON THE BEACH. AND I WEEP FOR HUMANITY. I AM LEGEND The end was brutal. I opened my eyes, I don't remember closing them, and found myself in the park, still sitting on the bench, with the same pain in my thigh. A few images of black holes or space battles were still floating through my mind, but everything was already over. I couldn't have said how long it lasted. But it was awesome. Amazing. That dizzying feeling. To my right, Mark had hid his face in his hands and was sobbing. What's wrong? Didn't you like it? Look around you, he shot back aggressively. Look where we are, where we're living, what we're doing. He was quiet for a few minutes, then sniffled and went on. What I saw was wonderful. And we should have been there. Been part of that world. Sky. Space. Dream. I know what you mean, said Phil. I know that feeling. Their come-down had been more brutal than mine, but they were probably right. They stole our future. Mark spat. I got up and turned toward the street. Asphalt. Houses. All the same and in a row. In the distance, I could see the swelling of shop mall. Then a jet pack flashed before my eyes. Come back to haunt me. The conquest of space. How was that going? My implant. What was it good for? talking with friends, all signed with brands like me, living in houses just like mine. Electric sheep. Instead of flying around in our cars, we rumbled with teen gangs on the payroll of some corrupt multinational, wearing masks with the faces of doped athletes. I was at home in the R.D. I belonged to this world Void of possibilities, without horizon or future. I was part of this world, and after what I'd just seen, I understood perfectly what Mark and Phil were feeling. They were fucking right. They stole our
0: future. But that made your lashes flutter a little bit mm. <laughs> well done Everybody, a big thank you Don't forget, copyright is Lauren Lauren, thank you so much And narration, rock, what can I say And don't forget Edward for translating that as well So we know what we, what's going on Thank you so much everyone So next up is, and finally is Mr JJ Campanella with his science news James Sir
2: Greetings and liloteric remunerations, my graciously thanatonic listeners. And welcome to this July 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this bizarrely sybaritic science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Welcome to the 8th year anniversary podcast of this segment. Yes, Starship Sofa has had the, uh, well, pleasure of hosting the Science Podcast since July 2008. Yes, in terms of duration, this segment has been around a while longer than, well, Firefly, Babylon 5, the original Star Trek, and for that matter, the Star Trek Next Generation. So we're not doing too badly. And because it's our anniversary, no sidetracks tonight. Just nummy nummy science stories. First story of the night. Exoplanets are blooming everywhere. Over a thousand planets have been added to the roster of worlds known to orbit other stars in the Milky Way. Dr. Timothy Morton of Princeton University announced this in the May issue of the Astrophysical Journal. That, my friends, is the largest number of exoplanets yet announced at once. Most of the 1,284 worlds are larger than Earth, but smaller than Neptune. And many of those are probably just big balls of gas, but over a hundred of the new discoveries are smaller than 1.2 times the diameter of Earth. And Morton says, quote, "Those planets that are 1.2 times the size of Earth are almost certainly rocky in nature." Unquote. Nine planets also lie within the habitable zone of the star system. That's the distance from the star where liquid water could conceivably collect on the surface of the planet. The announcement roughly doubles the number of planets discovered by NASA's planet-hunting workhorse, the Kepler Space Telescope, which now has found a total of about 2,325 exoplanets. Kepler spent about four years staring at maybe 150,000 stars in the constellations Cygnus and Lyra and watching for subtle dips in starlight as planets crossed in front of their suns. This planet bonanza comes courtesy of a new statistical calculation that allows researchers to feel confident that a detection is a real world. Imposters such as companion stars can mimic the signal of a planet. Traditionally, each planet candidate must be followed up with intensive observations from ground-based telescopes. But with over 4,000 candidates now in the queue, confirming each one, well, it will take a long time, This new calculation takes into account the details of how a passing planet should dim and brighten the starlight, along with how common impostors should be, and provides a reliability score for each candidate. Planets in Morton's study were those whose scores were 99% of certainty or greater. Those 4,000 planets will soon be dimmed by the addition of even more when the transiting exoplanet Survey satellite TESS TESS launches in late 2017, and then some of those planets found by TESS will in turn come under the gaze of the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch very late in 2018. I think it was originally meant to go up in 2013. I'm not entirely sure what the uh, what the problem has been with that telescope, but the new Webb Space Telescope will make Hubble look like, well, something that you'd give to your kid to look up at, uh, at the, the moon. The James Webb Telescope mirror will be made up of 18 mirror segments that form a total area of 25 square meters. That's almost 30 square yards. When they all come together, it will be 22 feet in diameter. And Hubble's mirror is just 8 feet in diameter. Well, next story. Is the body mass index utterly pointless? Well, perhaps it's not utterly pointless, but for years I have been saying that there is something seriously wrong with it. Even when I weighed a few pounds less and quite healthy, my BMI indicated that I was obese and at death's door. Yes, I am making personal statements that have nothing to do with science, but it's hard for me to trust numbers that make healthy, slightly overweight people worry about themselves. Well, in a recently completed, almost four-decade-long study in Denmark, which was published May 10th in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the myth of the usefulness of the Mass Body Index is finally shattered. The work was led by Dr. Bourja G. Nordeskard of Copenhagen. And forgive my pronunciation if it's way off. The study found that obese people seem to be at no higher risk of dying than those of normal weight. The new analysis actually fuels the ongoing debate about what's a healthy body mass index, especially in light of rising obesity rates, improved heart health treatments, and other factors influencing health and longevity. In short, the BMI as a number alone may not be sufficient to predict health and the risk of death. It has to be taken within some sort of context. For those of you who do not know what the BMI is, let me explain. BMI is a popular but fairly crude measurement of body fat. The calculation is reached by dividing a person's weight in kilograms by the square of their height in meters. People with BMIs between 18.5 and 24.9 are considered normal. A BMI between 25 and 29.9 is overweight. BMI of 30 and above is obese. In this new analysis, Nordisgaard and his team studied more than 100,000 adults. The three groups of white Danes recruited about 15 years apart reflected the general population of Copenhagen. From 1976 to 2013, BMI associated with lowest risk of death increased from 23.7 to 27 That falls squarely in the overweight category. What's more, obese individuals have the same mortality risk as people in the normal range. That trend held even when researchers took into account potentially confounding factors such as age, sex, smoking, and even a history of cardiovascular disease and cancer. Nordiskard says, quote, "...do not misinterpret our study to mean you can eat as much as you like." This is not what our findings suggest. Rather, the results indicate that people who are moderately overweight might not need to worry as much as they had in the past. So now maybe you can be overweight if you have high blood pressure and cholesterol treated, whereas in the past, they would have been deadly. Unquote. Part of the problem with this study, as you may have noticed, is that it's unclear whether the results apply to other ethnic groups. A hundred thousand white Danes will only tell you so much of a medical story. A substantial fraction of Asians, for example, develop type 2 diabetes and heart disease despite having BMIs lower than the existing cutoff point for being overweight. As I have insisted for years, though, the findings of this study underscore the idea that a person's BMI does not tell the whole story. While this measure is good for comparing populations, it is not as useful for evaluating individuals and their risk for disease and death. So, take that, BMI. Next story. You may remember a couple of months ago, I reported that someone had figured out how to hack 3D printers by recording them as they printed. This next story is very similar, and it's seriously disconcerting to anybody in computer security. So, what is the ultimate in computer security? How can you guarantee that no one can hack your computer? Simple. You air gap it. What does that mean? It means that the computer has no connection to any other computer, no Wi-Fi, no hard lines, nothing. No internet. That seems safe. Unless you physically interact with the computer in the room, you won't be able to hack it, right? Well, apparently, that's not the case anymore. In the past two years, a group of researchers in Israel have become highly adept at stealing data from air-gapped computers. Mordecai Guri, Manager of Research and Development at Cybersecurity Research Center at Ben-Gurion University, and his colleagues at the lab have previously designed three attacks that use various methods for extracting data from air-gapped machines. These methods have involved radio waves, electromagnetic waves, and the GSM network, and even heat emitted by the computers. Gurry's lab team now describes their new exfiltration method in a paper submitted to the journal Wired. The title of the paper is FANSMITTER, Acoustic Data Exfiltration from Speakerless Air-Gapped Computers. Yes, Gurry has figured out a way to undermine air-gap systems using little more than the sound emitted by the cooling fans inside computers. Although the technique can only be used to steal a limited amount of data, it's sufficient to siphon off encryption keys and lists of usernames and passwords, even small amounts of key logging histories and, and parts of documents. And it can be done from... Uh, maybe 25, 30 feet away. The researchers have so far been able to siphon encryption keys and passwords at a rate of about 15 to 20 bits per minute, and that's about 1,200 bits per hour. But they're working on methods to accelerate that data extraction. Gurry states, quote, We found that if we use two fans concurrently in the same machine, the CPU and the chassis fan, We can double the transmission rates, and we are working on more techniques to accelerate it and make it much faster. It just goes to show that no matter how secure you think your data may be, it probably isn't. And also, if somebody really wants to hack your system, they will figure out a way of doing it. Onwards and upwards. Next story. Okay, the next story is just plain creepy. And I have been trying to come up with some explanation for it, but my rather pathetic hypothesis, as you will see, doesn't really cover it. When something dies, that's it. That's the end. I'm not talking spiritual here. I'm not talking afterlife. I'm, I'm talking about our basic definition of life and death. What is alive and what is not. No, I'm not talking about zombies. All right. I'm not talking entirely about zombies. It appears now that once an organism dies, not all of the cellular lights flicker out at once. Writing in the journal Bioprescription, Dr. Peter Noble from the University of Washington reports that hundreds of genes come to life up to four days after an organism dies. Some are calling this the zombie genome and others the Thanato transcriptome, or the postmortem gene expression level, Noble and his team have developed a microarray technique called the gene meter to study the gene expression levels in newly dead zebrafish and mice. You may remember from previous podcasts that microarray profiles can look at the expression of thousands of genes being turned on and off at once, and that they are. Uh, arrayed on special glass in special plastic chips. Conventional microarray qualifies gene expression by normalizing expression profiles against databases, microarray databases. The new gene meter calibrates the microarray probes in a dilution series, allowing a researcher to match the expression patterns to get a magnified range of expression profiles, like the death transcriptome. Noble says, quote, it's like calibrating a pH meter, unquote. Using this technique, the team found that hundreds of genes are active following death, some showing expression within half an hour, others turning on 24, 48, even 96 hours later. These late expressing genes were involved in stress, immunity, inflammation, apoptosis, transport, development, epigenetic regulation, and even cancer. Because new molecules are synthesized so long after death, the authors suggest that cells maintain sufficient energy and resources for self-organizing processes to go on for quite a while. Noble says, We presume to understand the major biosynthetic and metabolic pathways. So when a system is shutting down, the shutdown has to be predictable in the light of those known pathways. Unquote. The technique and the results may eventually prove useful for forensic scientists who need to determine time of death, but also shows potential for testing the quality of organ transplants and exploring donor rejection rates or cancer incidence in recipients. Frankly, I wonder whether turning those zombie genes on isn't done by pathogens resident in the human body. Maybe viruses and fungi and bacteria are all activating those genes in order to help degrade the body. Maybe the processes are not so much shutting things down as getting everything prepared to be made back into mulch. All right, it's just a thought. Yes, it's a gross thought, but still a thought. I told you it was a pretty lame idea. The next story is one that will make Woody Harrelson and Kevin Smith say, I told you so. Why? Well, as much as we as a society denigrate pot smoking as being a nasty illegal habit, it may have some serious benefits. By the way, I spent a couple of weeks in Oregon last month visiting in-laws, and I wondered from time to time whether I hadn't entered the twilight zone. Oregon is among states here in the U.S. that have legalized marijuana smoking for personal non-medical use. I saw huge billboards. Advertising various marijuana brands like they were beer or cigarettes. Seriously, I was wondering whether I wasn't on a parallel earth. I had to keep explaining to my kids what this was about. At any rate, health benefits to pot? Uh, Maybe. In a new study at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in California, Dr. David Schubert and his group found that tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the active compound in marijuana, appears to remove toxic buildups of amyloid beta protein in the brain. Those are the brain plaques which are linked with the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Yes, that is amazing if it turns out to be true. Schubert says in a press release, although other studies have offered evidence that cannabinoids might be neuroprotective against the symptoms of Alzheimer's, we believe our study is the first to demonstrate that cannabinoids affect both inflammation and amyloid beta accumulation in nerve cells, unquote. Schubert's research came out this month in the journal Aging and Mechanisms of Disease. His team tested THC's effect on human neurons that were grown in the lab to mimic the effects of Alzheimer's disease. So please, 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 Note, the work was not, not, not done in a living animal of any kind. High levels of amyloid beta are associated with inflammation at higher rates of neuron death. And Schubert demonstrated that exposing the cells to THC lower the inflammatory response as well as the levels of amyloid beta protein, enabling the nerve cells to continue to live. Schubert says, quote, Inflammation within the brain is a major component of the damage associated with Alzheimer's disease. But it has always been assumed that this response was coming from immune-like cells in the brain and not the nerve cells themselves. When we were able to identify the molecular basis of the inflammatory response to amyloid beta, it becomes clear that THC-like compounds that the nerve cells make themselves may be involved in protecting the cells from dying." Receptors in the brain can be activated by endocannabinoids, which are a class of molecules made in the body that signal between brain cells. THC works similarly to endocannabinoids by activating the same receptors in the brain, which produces the drug's psychoactive effects. Further, Schubert says that physical activity leads to the production of endocannabinoids, And some studies have shown that exercise may slow the progression of Alzheimer's. Again, before getting too excited, it's important to note that these results were derived from exploratory laboratory models, not animals. So the researchers will still have to test whether the findings will translate over to animals and humans in clinical trials. I have complained strongly in the past that it takes years before treatments are found to be okay to expose to the public. Yes, the FDA is protecting people, but it's always a question of at what long-term cost. Well, thankfully, Schubert may have already found a way to avoid the tricky regulations surrounding marijuana research in the U.S., thanks to a drug candidate called J-147. In separate research, the team found that J147 acts similarly to THC by removing amyloid beta from nerve cells and reducing the inflammatory response. So the researchers may be able to test out these effects in humans without the U.S. government imposing its strict rules around cannabis research. Alzheimer's disease affects more than 5 million Americans, including, unfortunately, my recently diagnosed father. And the National Institutes of Health says it is the leading cause of death. Given that the rate of Alzheimer's is expected to triple in the next 50 years, any research that might give us insight into how to potentially counter its effects can serve to help. In the meantime, well, if you live in Oregon, California, or the Netherlands, well, you know what to do. Next story. If you're a ginger, be careful in the sun. Okay, I can hear thousands of redheads out there saying, Duh, Campanella, we knew that. Bear with me, though. As redheads all know, for years, there has been an association between red hair and the increased risk of skin cancer. Mind you, this association has been understood, but no molecular mechanisms for this phenomenon have ever been determined. Dr. David Adams of the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute and the University of Leeds has finally found the cause of this relationship. His group reports on the research this month in the journal Nature Communications. Adams found that gene variants associated with red hair, pale skin, and freckles are linked to a higher number of genetic mutations in skin cancers. The burden of mutations associated with these variants are comparable to an extra 21 years of sun exposure in people without that variant. Adams said, quote, It has been known for a while that a person with red hair has an increased likelihood of developing skin cancer, but this is the first time that the gene has been shown to be associated with skin cancers and more mutations. Unexpectedly, we also show that people with only a single copy of the gene variant still have a much higher number of tumor mutations than the rest of the population. This is one of the first examples of a common genetic profile having a substantial impact on a cancer genome, and it could help identify people at higher risk of developing skin cancer, Redheads compose about 2% of the world's population, and many carry variant copies of the MC1R gene, and that affects the type of melanin they produce, leading to red hair, freckles, pale skin, and a tendency to burn in the sun. While many individuals with red hair contain two copies of the variant MRC1 gene, investigators in this new study found that even a single copy of a red hair associated MCR1 gene variant increased the number of mutations in melanoma skin cancer. Moreover, many non-red-haired people carry these common variants, and the study shows that everyone needs to be careful about sun exposure. Adams analyzed publicly available data sets of tumor DNA sequences collected from more than 400 people. They found an average of 42% more sun-associated mutations in tumors from people carrying the gene variant. Adams continues with... This is the first study to look at how the inherited MCR1 gene affects the number of spontaneous mutations in skin cancers and has significant implications for understanding how skin cancers form. It has only been possible due to the large-scale data available. The tumors were sequenced in the U.S. from patients all over the world, and the data was made freely accessible to all researchers. This important research explains why red-haired people have to be so careful about covering up in the strong sun. The current study suggests that the MCR1 gene variant not only increased the number of spontaneous mutations caused by UV light, but also raised the level of other mutations in tumors. This suggests that biological processes exist for cancer development in people with the MCR1 variation that are not solely related to just ultraviolet light. Now my wife is a heterozygote for recessive red hair genes. Her dad had red hair, and she has red highlights in her brown hair. And she has the classic pale pigmentation and freckles of a redhead. Since she is a heterozygote, she is a carrier for at least one of the mutant variant MC1R genes. I know she burns in the sun like an egg on a Phoenix sidewalk and has already known for years that she needs at least an SPF 20 or better to avoid burns. Last story of the night. Okay, when I first read this, I. It seriously, it made me say, whoa. And this is because we often think we know how the world works. We think we know how evolution works. We think we know where we came from. We think we know where we're going. And it appears that we don't. Dr. David Enhard of Stanford University has just published a paper in the journal eLife that basically says that 30% of all protein adaptations since humans diverged from chimps have been driven by viruses. Ennard says, quote, when you have a pandemic or an epidemic at some point in evolution, the population that's targeted by the virus either adapts or goes extinct. We knew that, but what really surprised us is the strength and clarity of the pattern we found. This is the first time that viruses have been shown to have such a strong impact on adaptation, unquote. As we have discussed in previous science podcasts, proteins are the business end of our genetic code. They perform a vast array of functions that keep our cells going. By revealing how small tweaks in protein shape and composition have helped humans, and other mammals for that matter, respond to viruses, Nart's new study could help researchers find new therapeutic leads against today's viral threats. Work done previously on the interactions between viruses and proteins have focused almost exclusively on individual proteins that are directly involved in the immune response, the most logical place you would expect to find adaptations driven by viruses. This is the first study to take a global look at all types of proteins. And it explains, quote, the big advancement here is that it's not only very specialized immune proteins that adapt against viruses. Pretty much any type of protein that comes into contact with viruses can participate in the adaptation against viruses. It turns out that there is at least as much adaptation outside of the immune system as within it, unquote. Ennard and his group looked to identify all the proteins that are known to physically interact with viruses, settling on a list of about 1,300 of interest. At the same time, the researchers developed big data algorithms to scour genomic databases and compare the evolution of virus-interacting proteins to that of other proteins. The results reveal to the Stanford team that adaptations have occurred three times as frequently in virus-interacting proteins compared with other proteins. Enard stated, quote, The discovery that the constant battle with viruses has shaped us in every aspect, not just a few proteins that fight infections, but everything, is profound. All organisms have been living with viruses for billions of years. This work shows that those interactions have affected every part of the cell, Since viruses hijack nearly every function of a host Organism cell to replicate and spread, it makes sense that they would drive the evolution of the cellular machinery to a greater extent than other evolutionary pressures, such as predation or environmental conditions. This study sheds light on some long standing biological puzzles, such as why closely related species have evolved different machinery to perform identical cellular functions, like DNA replication or the production of membranes. Researchers previously did not know what evolutionary force could have caused such changes. Ennard's team was excited by their findings, and they are now using the knowledge to dig deeper into past viral epidemics, hoping for insights to help fight disease today. For example, HIV-like viruses have swept through the populations of our ancestors as well as other animal species at multiple points throughout evolutionary history. Looking at the effects of such viruses on distinct populations could yield a new understanding of our constant war with the viruses. Alright, let me get up on my soapbox for just a second to annoy the hell out of some of you. I'm a Roman Catholic, and a scientist, and yes, I believe in evolution. The Catholic Church has accepted evolution, unlike many Protestant churches, as a mysterious natural phenomenon that has reflected the mind of God for billions of years. Catholic Christians cannot simply accept the universe was made simplistically by fiat 6,000 years ago. That's a foolish cop-out that ignores the truth of science and the world around us. God is more complicated than we could ever imagine in a million years. And a world created by fiat in seven days does not fit with that complex nature. What am I getting at? For years, I have pissed and moaned about viruses. Forgive the vulgarity, but it describes my feelings fairly closely. Every time I got sick with flu, or my kids got sick, or we even got a head cold, or I got a head cold, I complained. What was the point? And then it got worse. When someone I knew even vaguely came down with HIV, I cursed. What was the point? I screamed silently. Why? Where did viruses come into creation? Why did they exist in a universe created by God where all things seem to have a purpose. I mean, there are good bacteria. There are bacteria that benefit humans and animals, that help us with yogurt and tofu and pickles. But there are no good viruses. There there are viruses that are more harmful or less harmful, but no good viruses. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you tonight a reason for viruses to exist. Yes, I am going out on a limb by talking about teleology, Uh, A good scientist has to be very, very, very careful when he speaks in teleological terms because teleology implies purpose and function. The entirety of biological creation on this earth has depended upon the force of viruses to bring about life as we know it, to bring about humanity as we know it. It simply goes to show that we really don't understand the world we inhabit and that our Creator is much more subtle than we can ever, ever imagine. Yes, this is a teleological argument. Yes, it's saying that even viruses have their function, that we understand now that viruses are important in evolution. But sometimes you have to go beyond science and talk about teleology. All right. That's all for me from now. As always, take care. I think I've said enough. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
0: Marvellous. What can I say? Jim, thank you very much. There we go. That is sure. 445, put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, this, this is the second of our translation specials. Two more to go. Do you know what I mean? It's just fantastic. Jeremy, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you again for kind of helping out and making this show what it is. Until next time, just like you say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible
1: ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for Next exciting installment of... This presentation has been brought to you by The District of Wonders Network Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction